Amen. Luke chapter 7, beginning in verse 11. Now it happened the day after that he, that is Jesus, went into a city called Nain. And many of his disciples went with him and a large crowd. And when he came near the gate of the city, behold, a dead man was being carried out, the only son of his mother, and she was a widow. And a large crowd from the city was with her. When the Lord saw her, he had compassion on her and said to her, Do not weep. Then he came and touched the open coffin, and those who carried him stood still. And he said, young man, I say to you, arise. So he who was dead sat up and began to speak, and he presented him to his mother. Then fear came upon all, and they glorified God, saying, a great prophet has risen up among us, and God has visited his people. And this report about him went throughout all Judea and all the surrounding region. It was a spring morning in 1994 when Bob Gresham picked up his rental truck. He and his wife, Edith, were moving their young family to a larger home. Well, Bob is a cautious guy. So before he cranked the truck, he checked around the tires to make sure his kids and their toys were out of the way. The coast seemed clear. He figured that 18-month-old Jeffrey was playing among the boxes stacked in the garage. Bob was wrong. As he backed the box truck down the driveway, Bob rolled its wheels over his son, crushing his body, killing him instantly. In the midst of the commotion, little Jeffrey had run out of the garage to say bye-bye to his dad. Very few situations in life are as difficult to deal with as the death of a child. As Lee Caldwell said, eight years after the death of his son Dale, if your father dies, your past dies. But if your child dies, your future dies. It's hard for people to understand the feeling. And I'm confident that's an understatement. The death of a child rips open the heart of a parent and leaves behind an enormous gaping hole. And such was the heart of this widow from the city of Nain. What caused her son's death, we're not told. But whatever it was, the results were unmistakable. Grief and anguish and heartache, unspeakable pain. The child she had brought into the world, she now escorts to the grave. This woman is a volcano of sorrow and despair. Deep within this mother's heart, molten misery bubbles up. A lava flow of tears are streaking down her cheeks. You remember when the old man Simeon met Mary of Nazareth in the temple with her eight-day-old son, Jesus? He prophesied over the baby and predicted his death. In fact, Simeon said to her, Yes, a sword will pierce through your own soul also. Simeon foresaw, foresaw the pain that Mary would experience when her son Jesus grimaced and convulsed and died on a cross. Every mother silently hopes that she dies before her child. Nothing pierces her soul like the death of a child. 
And to compound the grief that this mother felt, we learn from our text that she was not only burying her son, but she was reliving another tragedy that had occurred just a few months earlier. She had walked the same path with the corpse of her husband, her beloved husband. Verse 12 says that she was not only a bereaved mother, but a widow. See, death is supposed to be like lightning, never striking in the same spot twice. But it can, and it does. Just ask this woman. She's felt this pain twice. She's buried a husband and now a son. And this was her only son. Perhaps she had a daughter, we don't know. But she no longer has a son now to carry on her husband's name and to provide a roof over her head. This woman is living a nightmare. Author Max Licato, he paints a vivid portrait of this woman from Nain. She is the victim of this funeral. She is the one with no arm around her shoulder. She is the one who will sleep in the empty house tonight. She is the one who will make dinner for one in conversation with none. She is the one most violated. I would suppose that much of this woman's grief was the result of regret. She's so sad over what she'll now miss, what she'll miss out on in her life, a son's smile, his strong hugs, his visits, even the special celebrations that he arranges on Mother's Day. And speaking of Mother's Day, Today is that day. I've heard it said, Mother's Day is when everybody waits on mom and she pretends she doesn't mind the extra work. (laughs) Believe me, this mother would have given anything to have her son over for dinner, to cook his favorite meal, to even wash his dirty dishes. Nothing would have given her more joy than to clean a load of his laundry or help him with an overdue car note. The days for all that are over now. All this mother can do for her son is to see that he gets a decent burial and that fresh flowers adorn his grave. Let me say to the young moms that are here this morning, I'm not trying to be morbid. Odds are your children will long outlive you. You'll see your grandchildren, and your kids will care for you in your old age. And yet the days of your nurturing mom, the days of nurturing your child, will be over quickly. I often warn young parents, don't blink. A child's multiple days are over before you want them to be. Here's a mother's poem. Moms, listen carefully. It has a message for you. Just yesterday, it seems, my children played upon the floor, and I wiped countless fingerprints from windowpane and door. I kissed away a thousand tears and darned sock after sock and tried to keep pace with the hands that raced around the clock. And often when at the end of the day, too tired to sleep, in bed I'd lay, I'd think how nice when children grown, my time again would be my own. So now I sit and rock alone. My hands at rest, the work all done, no little tots upon the floor, no fingerprints upon the door, no socks to mend or bruises to kiss. Ah, me, how could I have known I'd miss the very things I grudge to do? Dear God, if only there might be someone again who needed me.
Trust me, Mom, the day will come when you'll give anything to kiss a boo-boo or to fix a meal or to pick up a pair of dirty pants from the floor. You'll miss the bedtime prayers and the Little League games and reading stories on a rainy day. And I know it's hard for you to wrap your mind around it now, but the day is coming when your van will go a whole year without needing new tires. Mom, there will be a day soon when your child will no longer need you. And when that day arrives, it will be filled with regrets. Understand, a Hebrew funeral procession was quite a sight. The rabbi residing over the graveside service led the way. As he walked toward the graveyard, he proclaimed the good deeds done by the deceased. The rabbi was then followed by musicians and mourners. The musicians played these dismal, melancholy dirges, while the mourners cried out in loud lamentations. All the weeping and wailing blared like a siren. In fact, to the Jewish people, the more outlandish and ostentatious the mourning and grieving, the better. Then behind the mourners came the corpse. It was carried on a wicker stretcher. The hairs and nails had been cut, the body washed and anointed and then wrapped. The face was left uncovered or perhaps draped with a lightweight veil, and the deceased's arms were folded across its chest. Family and friends then served as pallbearers. Frequent stops in the procession allowed new pallbearers to participate. And each time this parade of misery slowed down, mourners would erupt again with deafening wails. Behind the corpse came the rest of the family of friends. They were followed by a crowd of onlookers. You know, today when we see a funeral procession on the road, it's common courtesy, it's respect for the dead to stop our car and perhaps pull over or at least stand at attention. Jewish protocol went further. It required, if possible, the passerby join in the procession. This accounts for the large crowd coming out of the gate of Nain. But the fascinating point about this occasion is that there were two crowds approaching the gate, the same gate at the same time. Jesus and the folks following him were coming in as this funeral procession was headed out. On my trips to Israel, I've seen firsthand how the ancients constructed their city gates. Their gates were always very narrow and constricted, and they were built at sharp right angles. The configuration kept an invading army from entering a city with a head of steam. Thus, to pass through the gate, soldiers had to slow down in a line in single file and then twist and turn their way through the gate. This made it easier for defenders of the city to stave off an attack. Imagine the confusion now, the chaos, the commotion that day when these two crowds collided in the gate of Nain. The funeral procession was exiting the city. They had about a 10-minute walk to the graveyard, which was located beside the main road. Jesus and his band had just walked by that graveyard on their way into the city. I'm sure Jesus noticed the freshly dug grave. And realize the contrast between these two crowds. The funeral procession was walking sadness. They had paved their road with tears. Folks were mourning death. Whereas the crowd that followed Jesus was a party on parade. Their path was paved with laughter and singing 
You see, the day before in Capernaum, Jesus had healed a centurion servant. They had seen a miracle, and they were hoping for more. They were celebrating life. What contrasting groups crowded into this one gate at the same time? One group is weeping while another group is rejoicing. One group has been ripped off by the grim reaper. The other group has been made victorious by the power of God's Son. Here's a collision not only of people and bodies, but of spiritual realities. This is both a physical and a spiritual showdown. Occurring in the gate of Nain is a conflict between light and darkness. It's a head-on crash between life and death, pain and peace, between sorrow and joy. And in the midst of the mayhem, Jesus sees this grieving mother. And notice what Luke says in verse 13. When the Lord saw her, he had compassion on her. Notice this, friends. Jesus has a soft spot in his heart for aching hearts, especially for a mother's broken heart. On the cross, in the midst of his own agony, in the middle of his daring mission to save the world, Jesus had compassion on his mother, and he took the time to turn Mary over to the care of John. I know it was his own mom, but I believe it proves that Jesus cares about all moms. Jesus knows being a mother is a tough job. I ran across a help-wanted sign that reads, Long hours, low pay, little time off, must be willing to work overtime, weekends, holidays, and summer vacation. Energy, imagination, intelligence, endurance, flexibility required. Must have ability to lead, instruct, and guide. Coupled with a warm and loving, affectionate personality. On the job training offered. Job title, mom. Mom, Jesus knows you've got a tough job. He wants you to know that he's in your corner. He had compassion on this mom. And Jesus has compassion on all moms. Once a husband and his daughter, they were looking through he and his wife's wedding album. Well, the dad was thumbing through the photos, reminiscing about his wedding day. That's when his little girl asked him, said, Daddy, is that the day you got mommy to come and work for us? <laughs> Reminds me of the kindergarten teacher who showed her class a magnet. She explained how paper clips and other metal items were attracted to the magnet. She wanted to make sure the class understood the term magnet. So she asked again, what starts with the letter M and picks up things? One little boy answered, Mom. <laughs> and then there was the teenage girl who came down the stairs on Mother's Day and saw her mom doing all the dishes. She said, Mom, you shouldn't have to do the dishes on Mother's Day. The mom was touched by her daughter's thoughtfulness. She was just about to take her apron off when the teenage daughter added, Don't worry, mom, those dishes will keep till tomorrow. Hey, mothers of little girls and little boys and teenagers all have a tough job. Duties are endless, mothers get tired, they get taken for granted, and hey, so often dad doesn't always help as much as he should. But Jesus knows. Jesus sees you, Mom. 
He has compassion on you. Jesus loves you, Mom, and he understands what you're going through. He wants to comfort your heart and help you carry your load. Jesus will give you the energy to carry on even when you feel like giving up. All moms need to memorize Galatians 6 verse 9 and recite it daily. Let us not grow weary while doing good, for in due season we will reap if we do not lose heart. World famous anthropologist Ashley Montague, who was not a Christian by the way, he made though a true observation. He said, women are by nature endowed with the most important of adaptive traits the capacity to love. And this is the principle they must teach men. Once women know this, they'll realize that no man can ever play as important a role in the life of humanity as a mentally healthy mom or woman. Being a good wife, a good mother, in short, a good homemaker, is the most important of all occupations in the world. For he writes this, it surely cannot be too often pointed out that the making of human beings is a far more important vocation than the making of anything else. And that in the formative years of a child's life, the mother is best equipped to provide firm foundations upon which one can subsequently build. You know, I'm afraid our modern world has lost sight of the importance of motherhood. We've assumed that daycare and nurseries and preschool can do as good, if not a better job than mom. That's simply not true. As one mother put it, I work nonstop, 18 hours a day, 365 days a year. I receive no paycheck, no word of thanks, and nowadays no respect from the media. I am a stay-at-home mom whose hope is that 10 to 20 years down the road, my toil will pay off. And it will, mom. It will. If you don't lose heart, if you don't grow weary in doing good, in the end, you'll reap a bountiful blessing. Once a little girl in the Christmas play, she forgot her line, but her mother, who was sitting on the front row, came to the rescue. She mouthed the words so she, her little girl could see, I am the light of the world. Suddenly, the little girl shouted, My mom is the light of the world. <laughs> and it's true, mothers are the light of the world. It's been said, mothers write on the hearts of their children what the world's rough hand cannot erase. A mother's influence on a child is immeasurable. And one day, God will reward every persistent godly mom who doesn't grow weary of well-doing, just as he rewarded this mom he bumped into in the gate of Nain. What compassion Jesus had on this grieving woman. The Lord said to this mother, do not weep. You see, the rabbis used a formula in their funerals. They would say to the friends of the mourning family, weep with them, all you who are bitter of heart. Weep with them. But Jesus says the opposite to this woman. He says, don't weep, weep not. He tells this lady who's lost her husband and now her son, Damn up your tears. Draw up your eyes. Stop your grieving. Boy, if Jesus hadn't acted so quickly on the heels of his comment, he would have been accused of callousness toward a morning son, a morning mom. 
It might have been considered abuse. How do you tell a grieving mom to stop crying? But no sooner had Jesus said these words that he reached out his hand, he grabbed the coffin, he stopped the procession, and then he spoke to the corpse as if the dead man could hear. Young man, I say to you, arise. You know, on three different occasions in the New Testament, we find recorded that Jesus raised a person from the dead. Jairus' daughter and Lazarus and here this widow's son. And it's provocative that all three times Jesus literally spoke to the corpse. You know, he worked other miracles by an assortment of methods. He told a lame man to take up his bed. He touched blind eyes. On one occasion, he mixed spit and dirt and smeared it on the eyes, the mud on the eyes of the blind man. Jesus used these techniques to stir up the faith of the person in need. But each time Jesus raises the dead, the person's faith has nothing to do with it. They're dead. Jesus simply speaks to them. And they arise. Obviously, the voice of Jesus spans the deep, broad chasm we call death. His command controls the spirit world. Whenever Jesus says jump, angels and demons ask how high. Graves open at his word. People today will pay a visit to a graveside to speak to the corpse underneath the tombstone. But the corpse doesn't hear. In fact, Scripture forbids the living from trying to communicate with the dead. And yet one day, Jesus will return in the clouds. He'll speak, and the dead in Christ all over the world will rise. Here we're told that Jesus spoke to this young man, and in response, the boy sat up and talked. He was alive again. The King of heaven and earth, ruler of time and eternity, Lord of life and death. Jesus called back a boy from the spirit realm, and that boy obeyed. And verse 15 records the intriguing thing that happened next. Jesus presented him, or literally gave him back to his mother. Jesus called the son back from the dead, then gave him back to his mother. Death had taken this mother's boy away from her, but Jesus now steps in on behalf of this woman's broken heart. Jesus presents this boy back to his mama. And imagine this woman's reaction. One commentary reads, language is too feeble to express her joy. I believe every mom should have one overarching concern for her children. Yes, she cares about her, the meals and the clothes and the shoes and a good education. But a mom's chief concern should be about her child's spiritual condition. Whether her child is dead or alive. Is he or she alive to God or is that son or daughter dead to God? A mom knows that though she brought her child into the world, She can't guarantee that child heavenly passage into the world to come. Only God can do that. G. Campbell Morgan was one of England's greatest preachers. He had four sons who were also pretty good preachers. The youngest son was named Howard. 
Once Howard was asked, who's the greatest preacher in your family? Without hesitation, he replied, my mom. All mothers make excellent preachers. You know that, don't you? Moms know their kids. And they have a sense for where their kids are at with the Lord. If if her child's heart is slipping away, a mom feels it. If the child's faith is strong, the mom feels that too. A mom is in tune with the heart of her child, even more so than dead at times. Mama Bear is aware of the spiritual dangers her kids face, the temptations and the discouragement and the hurts and the peer pressure and the isolation and the confusion and the bullies. A mother knows her brood. She prays desperately for them as she preaches to them. And still, no matter how good a parent you are, your child can fall into the wrong crowd and be led astray. He or she can develop friends who have bad habits. You know, it's sad, but rebellion is contagious. It is. There is a sinful defiance in the heart of every child. The Bible teaches us that it's inborn. It's by nature that we're birthed with a propensity towards sin and selfishness. Job 5 verse 7 puts it, Yet man is born to trouble as the sparks fly upward. And all it takes is for a single spark from outside the family to set that rebellion ablaze in that child's heart. This is why godly mothers and fathers fight a battle of influence against the world and the flesh and the devil over the mind and heart and will of their children. And this means that confrontation is inevitable. For in the life of every mother's son or daughter, there's coming a collision of light and darkness, of life and death, of happiness and sorrow, of God and the devil, of Christ and the world, of the spirit and the flesh. Every child must pass through the gate of Nain. You know, the word Nain actually has two definitions. In one context, it can mean affliction. But in another context, it means beauty. And your child's life will be troublesome or beautiful depending on the choices that he or she makes. Each child passes through the gate of name or the gate of decision. And here's what I found to be the toughest part of parenting. Every mom and dad wish they could walk with their children through this gate, but they can't. Mom, as much as you'd like, you can't walk with your child through the gate of decision. It's too narrow. It's big enough for only one person to pass at a time. Two crowds are pressing in and colliding at this gate. There's chaos and confusion, and this makes your child vulnerable. It's possible to make a wrong decision. Your child can fall into the crowd that's going to hell. Or he or she can stand with the crowd headed to heaven. And it's far, far too easy for your child to end up in the wrong crowd. We wish our children didn't have to decide on their own, but they do. Mom, you can prepare your child when he or she is young. And prepare them, you must. But as much as you'd like to be there, the day will come 
when your child will pass through the gate of Nain by their lonesome without you. They'll have to deal with the impact of that collision on their own. Mom, let me repeat. You can't walk it with them or decide it for them. Yet here's where our passage gives to parents and especially moms a remarkable hope. For when a believer's child passes through the gate, Jesus will be there. In the gate of decision, at the crucial moment, Jesus will be there to meet your child. He'll stop him. He'll touch his wicker stretcher. He'll speak to her. He'll awaken her mind to the truth. Jesus can even quicken their soul from the dead. Jesus has done it before, and he will do it again. Because Jesus has compassion on moms, he'll be there for you, mom, when your child passes through that gate. When a child's ears begin to hear Satan's serenade of sin and death, when he or she is tempted to fall in step with the world's living funeral procession, I know every mom wishes she could be there, but she can't. It's been said, every mom is like a Moses. She cannot enter the land. She prepares a world she will not see. But mom, Jesus is your child's Joshua. For where Moses' influence ended, Joshua's began. Moses got the children to the point of decision, but Joshua won for them the victory. And just as Joshua took over for Moses, Jesus promises to take over for you, Mom. In the days and in the years ahead, trust your child to Jesus. You know, the book of Ecclesiastes was written from the viewpoint of man without God. A life without God. Chapter 2, verses 18 and 19, and I'll read it from the Living Bible. I like this translation. It says, I am disgusted about this, that I must leave the fruits of all my hard work to others. And who can tell whether my son will be a wise man or a fool? And yet all I have will be given to him. How discouraging. <laughs> well, the writer of Ecclesiastes was Solomon. He was the wisest you know, the richest man who ever lived. Yet he was smart. He apparently had no confidence that when it came time for his son to make his own decisions, he would make the right ones. Such is the predicament of all parents, and especially the parent without God. Yet if you are a Christian mom or dad, you have a hope. For Jesus is there at the gate of decision. He will be there with the power to touch your child. You know, usually when we discuss Jesus' famous parable of the prodigal son, we're quick to apply the story to God's forgiveness for us, of us. But we fail to notice in the story the father's faith before his son returned. I mean, the dad in the story watches his son leave home with his inheritance knowing the boy's going to travel to a far land, waste away that wealth, and it'd take years for him to come to his senses. And yet the father stayed behind, and he let it all happen. 
proving it takes enormous faith to turn loose and let go of a child you dearly love. The father of the prodigal believed the passage in Proverbs 22, verse 6, train up a child in the way he should go, and when he's old, he won't depart from it. This dynamic of a parent letting go of their child, you know, it's seen nearly every Sunday morning in the Calvary Chapel nursery right back there. Camp outside those doors. It's really kind of interesting. You'll see a common sight. A new mom agonizing over placing her baby in that nursery for the very first time. She has to turn loose. She has to let go. She has to trust her child to another. Watch her plant her final kiss on that newborn's cheek for the 15th time. The nursery worker has to pry the baby out of her arms. And wait until that child's first day at school. I'll never forget it. From the time Kathy dropped off our firstborn to the time she picked Zach up, she sat at home and cried the whole time. Three hours. In the beginning, my wife had a hard time handling the fact that her little guy was growing up. Of course, by now, we've seen our kids get their driver's license, go on their first date, walk the aisle and get married, buy a house, even have kids of their own. But parenting is a process of letting go. And here's what every Christian mom and dad needs to know. Here is a word of hope for you. I believe with all my heart, when that time comes, when my children go where I can't follow, that my Lord Jesus will go with them. That he'll be there for them. That he'll meet them at the gate of Nain that his light will collide with the darkness. My Lord loves my kids more than I do. Here was a woman who had given up on her son, but now Jesus is giving him back to her. As verse 15 tells us, and he presented him to his mother. Whenever we perform a baby dedication, we present the child to the Lord. And I wish that was the last time we had to do it, but it's not. For we present our kids to God daily. We have to turn them over again and again. Yet here's the truth we can apply from this morning's text. One day, Jesus will present our children back to us. If you've committed your life to raise your children in the nurture and admonition of the Lord, then Jesus will commit himself to you. He'll be there when you can't be. He'll shine his light when the darkness rolls in. Even when your child seems to be dead to the things of God, Jesus will stop him and touch her and speak to them and jar their memories and even bring them back to life. Mom, when other people give up on your kids, when you don't know where they are or what they're doing, Jesus will be there in the gate. He'll watch over them. And one day, Mom, Jesus will present your child back to you alive and whole and forgiven and speaking his praise. Here's hope for moms. Give your children to Jesus, and one day, Jesus will give them back to you. Father, we thank you.
for your word to our moms this morning, to all of our parents.